0: You're listening to a podcast from Millennials for Marriage. You can find this and other great resources anytime at our website at millennialsformarriage.org. That's millennialsformarriage.org. And now, here's our podcast. Welcome to The Hitch today I'm with P- Professor Combe. She serves as an Associate Dean and is the John Brown McCarthy Professor of Law at Regent University School of Law. She earned her law degree from Syracuse College of Law and is a graduate of Albany University. She was honored with the Chancellor's Award of uh, Excellence, faculty excellence at Regent University in 2005 for her work defending marriage equality, issues of estate planning, training lawyers and family restoration and discipling females uh, law students. Professor Combe has published prolifically on er- legal areas of concern to families, including marriage, women, children, families, trust, and support obligations at death. She teaches family law, wills, trust, and estates, elder law, bioethics, and gender in the law. She teaches law students and lawyers many of the legal concepts and techniques that assist individuals and families in planning for the incapacity and estate distribution. Her most popular book is Estate Planning Success for Women, which has been nominated for several awards because of its unique perspective on women and their influence over the transfer of wealth in the next generation. Prior to teaching, Professor Combe practiced law in New York concentrating in the areas of estate planning, probate administration, Real, practice, real estate and family law. She is licensed to practice law in Virginia, New York, Florida, Massachusetts, and DC. Uh, Professor Combe is barred in all those um, all those states. She has a missionary's heart and she has served full-time staff with Campus Crusades for six years prior and during law school. Her and her husband, Joe, have homeschooled two of their children. Welcome. So we
1: have something in common.
0: Jen. Yes, I, I haven't That's actually, you know, I don't tell many people because they ask, well, how do you do it all, um, one day at a time? That's but grace. it's That's wonderful. Right. How old are your children? Well, mine are now 24 and 22. Wow! You get the the badge award, the homeschool mom badge award, because it is. I I always tell people I get ten doctorates. Homeschooling is the hardest thing I that ever. It's the done. most rewarding, too. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Thank you for being here. Sure,
1: thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So today, I wrote, uh, I read a um, an article that you wrote last year called "A Perspective Analysis of Family Fragmentation: Baby Mama Drama Meets Jane Austen." Uh, I loved that, and I laughed. How did you come up with that uh, title? Well. Because
1: I had been preparing a course that I taught in Oxford last summer, and it was on law, economics, marriage, and literature. So we used all of Jane Austen's stuff to look at the law over 300 years, comparatively between the U.S. and the U.K. And as I was doing that, I thought, you know what? This was all to protect women with marriage from um, single motherhood. Mm -hmm. And yet, here we are 300 years later, and it is extremely popular. Oh, yeah to be somebody's baby mama. Yeah. And the more I researched into what it means to be a baby mama, the more I realized they're exactly like Jane. Except (laughs) Jane didn't have any kids. This is true. So I just tried to use some of Jane Austen's wisdom through her novels, which if you've read her work, is pervasive. She was a woman wise beyond her years, and yet she made fun of everybody while being wise and explaining the principles, and all her characters would go through this progression of developing their own character to realize, hmm, I thought I knew what I was doing. Now I see how I was wrong, and I can fix it. And it was really, really great to see that that's possible for you know a woman who thinks her only way out of her home is to get pregnant and have a baby and get some TANF. So I realized you know, the baby mama drama is a lot because um, of what's happening economically and socially in our culture. And it's nothing new under the sun. It's not a whole lot different from what women were dealing with 300 years ago. I just wanted to look at some of the current economics from uh, especially University of Chicago economists. They kind of are leaders in this field and there's particularly a guy named Gary Becker just passed away recently and he's written uh, a family treatise on economics. And it's just wonderful just how he puts all this together and how we realize that family is really the basic economic unit of every sure. single society around the globe. And when you start deconstructing that family, removing parts as unnecessary, you get kind of what we have, a little bit of a mess. So I figured let's, you know, connect baby mamas with Jane Austen. And That's, awesome.
0: That's awesome. There's three parts um, in your article. The first considers... Uh, the law and the economics of never-formed families as manifested in the single motherhood. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Sure.
1: So let me first explain what is a never-formed family. It's a family that uh, a man and a woman have gotten together and had a child, um, and they have not married. They don't necessarily cohabit, maybe they do, but it's a family that doesn't have any formalization. So there's no legal obligations between the mother and father other than to care for the child. So that's hmm. a never-formed family. Included in that group of never-formed families are fragmented families, which are um, divorced uh, parents, um, who, which often ends up in single moms taking care of small children. And, and that uh, phenomenon has led to a lot of poverty for yeah. women and children. It's called the feminization of poverty, and we've been dealing with it for two generations. The baby-mama phenomenon is kind of new, Uh, with never formed families. is really just a generation old. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I look at from 1980 to 2015 and then 2015 to 2045, trying to look at those perspectives over those two generations. What's it going to take to rebuild the human capital that families create and to restore families?
0: Yeah, 53% of uh, children born today are born out of wedlock, and 83% of those children are falling into poverty. And it's it's an economic, You know, an an epidemic. It is. It's a
1: disaster for those kids. In fact, in the article, I just talk about how children of these parents are necessarily underprivileged by both the lack of family stability and family wealth. So, not only do they not have two incomes or or income from a dad coming into the house, but they don't have a dad around Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. So, the stability is really tenuous, and these kids are much less likely to end up um, in college. They're Mm -hmm. much less likely to finish high school, much less end up in college. They're much more likely to become parents themselves as teenagers. Um, If the dad re-enters the home and connects with some kind of personal responsibility to the mom and the child, all these new wonderful things happen to the child. Um, The child puts off things like uh, drug experimentation. They put off sexual debut. They um, think more about their future. So there's all these good things that happen when a mom and a dad are together present for a child. An economic approach to this really um, provides a powerful framework for understanding what's happening when we think, oh, well, I'm just doing what I feel like doing. Well, you know, you keep going for a half century,
0: and we're going to reap these results that we didn't intend. Yeah. they're um, Out of the Brookings Institute, uh, they started doing some writing on hip marriages um high investment parenting Mm -hmm. and you know where I think marriage is a great way to to at least the path towards eradicating poverty uh, they believe that if you turn the roles around and let the fathers stay home and the mothers work because of uh they don't think they're marriageable um which means they they don't have the skills uh to work uh then somehow this will help solve the issues within the family in the urban community. I don't think that the urban men are going to start running into the home saying, I'd love to take care of these kids. It's, it's really... Let me at that stove. <laughs> exactly. I think that, uh, I think that they kind of got it wrong. Um, but marriage, it, it does. It is a, it's a wealth builder.
1: It is. It and is. And instead... What um, women, single women who uh, have children tend to do is rely on government uh, assistance. Um, WIC, TANF, um, even SNAP at times is really what moms and kids rely on to get through the week because the child needs mom so she can't work too much and hope maybe she's even trying to get an education. So government assistance really kind of creates all the support they have, which is – impoverished support in, mm-hmm. in my view and we still have in the United States with the rise of that dependence we have the worst child poverty indicators in the industrial world according to a recent survey by Fordham University and uh, that's discouraging to me mm-hmm. and it's connected really with the growth of the welfare state and has been really a powerful force that changed the family In recent decades. It made women and children think they didn't need dad around. It made dad think he didn't need to be around. We've done a very systematic um, approach to, we don't need dad. Mm -hmm. We don't need him for money. We don't need him for support. We don't need him around. Um, We don't need him for housing. And what that has done is kind of Dehumanize men but made them really unnecessary mm-hmm. and um, th- that's dangerous kids it do is. need a dad yeah. kids need a mom and they need a dad so this creates way- greater child well being when both mom and dad are there together Becker talks about this also creating something called parental altruism when parents want to pour themselves into their kids like you want to like these hip parents want to like I wanted to and still want to even though my kids are adults So this parental investment in the human capital of their children is really the notion that human capital is an important aspect of economics. It's really created mostly in families. But um, another book I relied on in this research was Charles Whelan's Naked Economics. They're actually on the fourth Naked Economics, but it's kind of economics for dummies. So it's really a good read. But he says, human capital is the sum total of all skills embodied in an individual, all their education, all their entrepreneurial vigor, even their ability to throw a baseball. And if they could throw it fast enough to get drafted. Um, He says it's what you would be left with if someone stripped away all your assets. And he explains why human capital is so significant for families in that it's not really about earning more money, but it's about making us better parents, making us more informed voters, making us more appreciative of culture and art and enjoying the fruits of life. He's got all kinds of very intangible things that he uh, quantifies economically. And he actually says this microeconomic effect of human capital on individual families creates this incredibly positive macroeconomic effect on the common good. And we're missing that in culture today by having families rely on government benefits instead of creating that little commonwealth themselves. So these ideas really have profound implications when you apply them to single motherhood. Um, It's a major economic discussion that really shows how a child benefits when a family remains intact. I read a lot, too, about marriage, and so that's what made this even more interesting, because Jane never married. Jane Austen never married. When the, the second section is about marriage markets. Okay, if I go ahead go to Go ahead, that. go, yes, so part she, two. So she never got married, but she had an opportunity to be married. She um, was proposed to by um, a man that was gonna inherit a huge estate, huge fortune, and his name was um, Mr., I think it was Henry Biggs Wither. And she, I think she was like 27 when he proposed to her, and she realized, I better do this. She was like Charlotte Lucas. Any of you who've read Pride and Prejudice, she was Charlotte. <laughs> and she said, well, I better marry this guy so I can have some comfort in my age, and maybe take care of my mom, who's now a widow. My sister, whose fiance was passed away. So anyway, Jane said yes. And then the next morning, she could not live with herself and she went right and broke the engagement because she couldn't imagine marrying because just because she needed someone to support her so she said I'll figure out something else (laughs) and I think that's when she really started writing um they she and her mom and sister ended up living with her brother which was important at the time um sibling uh males took care of their sisters and moms in the absence of their dad so she's lived this she's lived the poverty of a single mom her first book, I think she only got something like 600 pounds for it, which wow. is nothing, nothing back then compared to what she needed to live on. But she did it. Um, anyway, I think she also did marry him because we didn't want to be reading Jane Biggs with her.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: this is true. Jane, Jane Austen rolls Austin. out the tongue a little better. That's right. So she felt compelled to avert this economic complight of single women, and yet she couldn't. she couldn't face herself and her own future, knowing that that's what she was doing. So I'm not suggesting in any way that women marry for money. I'm suggesting in every way that um, women, especially moms, reconsider. What am I thinking about here? How am Mm -hmm. I going to do this? I also looked at a lot of the work on marriage markets by Naomi Kahn and June Carbone. They're two um, feminist scholar friends of mine who are just fantastic researchers, and they've looked at what's going on with marriage markets and how... College graduates are putting off marriage while high school graduates are completely not even getting, they're, actually high school dropouts are completely not even getting married. They're just going ahead and having kids. So it's creating this incredible gap. So these people who are college get married much later, closer to their 30s. These people that are high school dropouts, less education, um, don't get married, have children, end up in impoverished, needing government assistance. And so we have poor people over here, the baby mamas, and then we have wealthy people over here. So it creates this thing called marriage, or well, marriage inequality, but income inequality. So that income inequality is dramatically changing our culture. And you hear politicians talk about it because they say it's like we have two Americas. Well, we've done it to ourselves. The government hasn't done it to us except for causing people who are in need to rely on government assistance rather than put off Sexual debut, put off um, that relationship of becoming a parent, and and instead pursue education, and then the of edu- the benefits that come with that education. So you can see with this income inequality gap, the people that have children as high school dropouts are probably going to. Nurture children that are probably going to have children as high school dropouts. Mm -hmm. And the people that are college educated are going to make sure their kids are are educated. So it's going to just get bigger and bigger. So uh, to avoid that catastrophic storm, I'd like to just embrace every baby mama or every Jane (laughs) Austen and say, hey, let's talk about this economically first. Let's talk about what this means for your life, your future. So that's where the road ahead comes in, the third section. And I tried to look ahead to 2045. What's it gonna look like in 2045? And the first one is that gloom and doom. You know, all the educated people are gonna keep having educated people, keep raising educated children. Their children are gonna marry educated children. The people at our high school dropouts are gonna continue that cycle. So it looks terrible 20 years from now. Um, that looks really bad. Unless we do something that kind of deals with this. And um, my daughter is an economics major at the University of Chicago. And her economics professor said, I know exactly how to fix the income inequality that's happening in America. All of you in this room at University of Chicago Economics need to go home and marry a high school dropout. <laughs> now, that is not going to happen. No. No. Maybe it'll happen for one out of 100, but it will not happen for most of them. Right. Most of them have different goals and objectives. And actually, most of the, of the high school guys back home have different goals and objectives, too. So that's not really a good solution. <laughs> So really, one solution is uh, for family law to start thinking differently about families. And um, there's a a professor at um, Stone... um, Oh, shoot. What's that school in New York and Long Island? I can't even think of it. Stony Brook. Um, Her name is Claire Huntington. And she says that really we do family law as negative family law. We don't do anything until something falls apart,
0: which is true. We don't do anything until somebody fights over custody or somebody needs a divorce. We call that in foresight, you can anticipate or you can react. Mm-hmm. So law has been a reactor. The law is
1: reactive. Now, I'm not suggesting I like government intervention or family law sure. intervention. I don't want a judge to come in my home and tell me how to be a parent. But I am suggesting that states can set policies that encourage parenting in a different way. President Obama has been at the forefront of this. He wants to see dads come back to be re-engaged with their kids, wants to see them be involved. And you know what solution he's proposed his entire eight years? Marriage. Get married. So even if these high school dropouts get married to each other, all of a sudden they have now all of these benefits that come from being married. There's some states, there's tax breaks. There's a federal tax break. Um, There's benefits for um, medical um, concerns. Now you can, if one of you gets a job, all of you get covered. Um, There's just so many good benefits of marriage, and that's just the the financial ones. Let's talk about this human capital thing. Wow, now we have mom and dad together creating wealth. Even if only one of them is working, they're raising kids, they're, they're a team. A team will always get more accomplished than an individual. So that's why President Obama's proposing marriage. Now you don't hear that talked about a no, lot you in the media, you don't, cuz there's so many other things to fight about. But I feel like this is really worth fighting for. Yeah. That if people could start getting married and instead what happens is um, people either go ahead and have the child or children or they start cohabiting and so there's no commitment being made. And I just did some research on millennials. Um, There's only right now, of people under 30, only 20% of them are married. Yeah. And yet, 90% of them say they want to be married. They do. They do. They're just scared they're of the scared. commitment. And what cohabiting does is it kind of sabotages that future commitment because you're in a relationship where you're like, well, I hope this ends in marriage or maybe or I don't know or whatever. So you're in a relationship or that's non-committal. Or they have two different
0: views. You know, the, sure. the man thinks, you know, this is a really great thing. I mean, I'm getting <laughs> half my rent. I have, you know, this lady here. And the woman's thinking this is one step towards marriage. Right. And, and they're not on the same page. Right. So um, that
1: really just kind of creates this sabotage effect on, on uh, the parties as they pursue um, whatever it is they're pursuing together, figuring out what the future is. Mm-hmm. So really, marriage is kind of the solution. Now, of course, you don't just want to marry anybody. Right. But you also don't just want to have a child with anybody. You want to really think about, is this a person I want to do that with? Mm-hmm. And yet, if you don't have a mom or dad to help you do that, help you think about that, you're not going to break that cycle. So anyway, the last um, part just talks about, you know, the the detriments of having numerous sexual partners, uh, especially before you're married, because that makes you less marriageable. Um, Both men and women, you know, women, why do all the women love Tim Tebow? (laughs) Because he's a pure guy. Yeah. He's a good man. They know they can trust him because he has waited for whoever God has for him to marry. But it's clear that having a child before marriage really limits a woman's marriage market thereafter. And even if purely due to a lack of time to develop a relationship with a good man, that's hard because you're already trying to pour yourself into a, a child. So anyway, the article speaks for itself and it just says that you know this first thing we need to do is try to amend federal and state codes to try to encourage marriage. Um, I love that that's President Obama's. Uh, that's one of the good things he's done while he's been in office. Secondly, that helps us stabilize child welfare. If we promote marriage, people who are married are probably gonna be having kids and that's gonna be stable for the child. So that'll promote child welfare. And you can do that even apart from marriage, but I do think that marriage is a good solution to doing that. And then the third thing I suggest in this article is that we need to just do everything we can to strengthen marriage, to reduce that non-marital birth rate, to encourage men and women why they wanna put off becoming parents, For the best interest of the child and the best interest of them. I've heard too many young girls say, Well, I don't have a plan for my life, I'm just gonna go ahead and have a baby. That is not the solution. God has a much better solution for their life. And stability for the children that come after that requires really incentivizing childbearing in the context of marriage. So baby mama drama? I love it.
0: Well, I love it. Doesn't have to be a continuous cycle, it can be broken. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you. Do you have a website, a Uh, blog side, uh, books that you can recommend, both that you've written and that you're reading currently? I do.
1: Um, I have a blog, it's called Family Restoration, and it deals with all kinds of issues, with children, women, families, dads, uh, international issues. And if you just put in Google, Regent Family Restoration, it'll be the first thing that comes up. I also have, you can get this article on my SSRN page, Social Science Research Network um, publishes research like mine. So I have a page there. And if you just put in my name, Lynn with an E, Marie Combe, K-O-H-M, in the ssrn.com page, you will get my articles. Click on my name and you'll see all my articles. Or I put in Baby Mama Drama. I don't think anybody else has an article (laughs) with that title. But if you put that in at ssrn.com, you'll find all all those articles. And you can always go to regent.edu My last name is K-O-H-M, and you can see everything that we're doing here at Regent. I'm not the only one writing about this fun stuff, but I have to admit I love what I do. And it's an honor to be here. And an honor to meet you and be with you, Jennifer.
0: You're listening to a podcast from Millennials for Marriage. You can find this and other great resources anytime at our website at millennialsformarriage.org. That's millennialsformarriage.org.